Edinburgh is renowned for many things. Its people and the city itself have, for hundreds of years, played a pivotal role in shaping the world around us, and they continue to influence and shape the modern world. In the 1700s, the city became a hub for intellectual and philosophical advancements, contributing to the broader Enlightenment movement. Enlightenment thinkers promoted concepts such as human rights, secularism and political philosophy, influencing the development of constitutional governance and the critique of absolutism. The University of Edinburgh's medical school produced notable figures like Alexander Fleming, the discoverer of penicillin, and Joseph Lister, a pioneer in antiseptic surgery. Edinburgh stands as a muse to countless wordsmiths who have left their mark on the world of literature. From intellectual gatherings of the Enlightenment to the mysterious closest of the old town, this city has inspired and housed some of the greatest literary minds. Influential writers such as Sir Walter Scott, Muriel Spark and Irvin Welsh have all called Edinburgh home. Another literary giant who Edinburgh can claim as their own is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle remains one of the city's most celebrated contributors to the global literacy landscape. Born in 1859 in Picardy Place, Doyle had a troubled early life due to his father's struggles with alcohol. Due to this, in 1864, the family dispersed and the children found temporary accommodations throughout Edinburgh. Arthur in particular resided with Mary Burton, the aunt of a friend, at Liberton Bank House on Gilmerton Road, all the while pursuing his studies at Newington Academy, living there until 1867, when the family were reunited. Financed by wealthy uncles, Doyle was dispatched to England at the age of nine to attend school in England. From 1875 to 1876, he furthered his education at the school in Austria. From 1876 to 1881, Doyle studied medicine at the University of Edinburgh's medical school. Despite his Catholic upbringing, Doyle eventually renounced his faith and embraced agnosticism. Some attribute this shift to the time that he spent in his less rigid Austrian school. In later years, he delved into spiritualist mysticism. These days, he's best known for creating the iconic detective Sherlock Holmes, a character who's transcended literature to become a cultural phenomenon. The detective's keen powers of observation and deductive reasoning have left an indelible mark on the mystery genre. Holmes is also said to be based on another son of Edinburgh, Dr Joseph Bell. Dr Bell was a lecturer at the University of Edinburgh Medical School when Conan Doyle studied there. He was known for his keen powers of observation, logical reasoning and deductive methods, which greatly influenced the creation of Holmes. Doyle once remarked that Bell often learned little tricks from his old master and credited Bell with shaping Holmes's analytical and deductive techniques. Due to his career as a doctor, Bell is believed to have participated in numerous police inquiries, primarily within Scotland, including the 1893 Ard Lamont mystery, often collaborating with forensic specialist Professor Henry Littlejohn. 
The Ardlamont mystery of 1893 involved a controversial shooting incident at Ardlamont House in Scotland. The case centred around allegations of foul play in the death of Lieutenant Alfred Monson's friend, Cecil Hambra, during a hunting expedition. The trial garnered significant attention due to suspicions of a staged crime scene and questions about Monson's involvement. Ultimately, the outcome of the trial was acquittal for Monson, but the case remained shrouded in mystery and controversy. Additionally, Bell provided his insights into the 1888 Jack the Ripper murders to Scotland Yard. Beyond medicine, Bell made significant contributions to the field of forensics and maintained a successful medical career, leaving a lasting legacy in both the medical and literary worlds. Dr. Bell lived in a large townhouse in Melville Crescent, but prior to this, he owned a large corner property in the Newington area of the city, on a street called Blackett Place. Until the 16th century, Newington was part of the ancient forest of Drumselk, with only Grange of St Giles and the roads via Liberton and Dalkeith interrupting the woodland. During the 17th and 18th centuries, Gallows stood in the area known as Gibbet Lode. In 1805, Benjamin Bell, the great-grandfather of Dr Joseph Bell, purchased the entire Newington estate, constructing Newington House, marking a period of intense development in the 18th and early 19th centuries. While an affluent area, it couldn't escape scandal and, in 1829, after the execution of the infamous body snatcher William Hare, a mob surrounded Dr Robert Knox's house on Newington Road, burning an effigy of the good doctor. Knox, as cunning as he was clever, was able to escape by disguising himself as a Highlander and fleeing the area. Blackett Place, built between 1830 and 1850 and sheltered from the main road by large protective walls, was the centre of a spine-chilling haunting in the late 1880s documented by the Society for Psychical Research. Turning into Blackett Place, you pass through the old entry gate that once safeguarded the street from the busy Dalkeith Road. Here you'll find many Georgian and Victorian houses lining this quiet and well-to-do street. One house, set a little back from the entrance, had been happily occupied by an unnamed family since 1871. On the face of it, the three-storey sandstone house was as impressive and normal as the other houses on the street. And for many years, life in the house was as you would expect it, normal. However, as the clock ticked towards the late 1880s, peculiar occurrences began to cast a shadow over the once tranquil facade of this mysterious house. Local whispers spoke of strange sights in the dead of night, unsettling events unfolding behind tightly drawn curtains and an unsettling chill that lingered even on the warmest days. The spectral rumours caught the attention of a Mrs Britzke of the Society for Psychical Research, or the SPR, prompting an investigation into the unexplained phenomena that seemed to converge within the walls of this unsuspecting residence. What they uncovered would not only challenge the boundaries of the known, but etch Blackett Place into the annals of history as a place where the mundane and the supernatural collided in a haunting tale 
that defied explanation. The following accounts are taken from the letters submitted to the SBR by the family themselves and can be found in the SBR archives. Although they're not named in the journal, with the help of John Tintallon from North Edinburgh Nightmares, we've been able to uncover two of the three names. The first letter was sent by a Miss P.M., but for our purposes, we'll call her Miss Penelope Monroe. My dear Mrs. Britska, as I've promised, I must write you an account of the things we saw in our old house in Edinburgh. But remember, I put them down to indigestion, or else neuralgia. The house was very damp and had been unlit for a long time before we took it, which was in 1871. I believe I was the first who saw anything unusual, and it must have been one autumn afternoon, around 4pm. I was passing through the hall from the dining room to the schoolroom, where two doors faced each other, and I saw the figure of a woman standing on about the fourth step from the bottom. She had her arms folded and was draped all over, head included, in white. She seemed to be watching me, and the thrill that ran through me made me fly into the schoolroom. But almost immediately after, I ran out again to see if it was only fancy, and found it had disappeared. I never mentioned this to the others, or the servants, as I was too ashamed of myself, but told my mother only. But as it proved eventually, it appeared to nearly all in the house. I can only recollect seeing it about six or seven times altogether, I think, and it was nearly always in daylight. One evening, when the upper hall was dark, I saw it and had the courage to follow it and ran straight against the shut door, which shock brought me to myself, and it disappeared. Another afternoon, I saw it in the drawing room. But I am sorry to say I was too great a coward to go up to it, as I could understand things appearing at night, but when they came in daylight, I couldn't make head nor tail of it. Another peculiar incident took place. Our storeroom was upstairs as the basement was so damp, and my sister had gone upstairs to get some wine. We heard a tremendous fall, and running out, found my sister lying at the bottom of the staircase, surrounded by broken bottles and debris. The first thing that attracted my attention was this same figure, standing just at the bend of the staircase, and, naturally enough, thought she had seen it there too, and in her fright had fallen. But when she came to, she said that somebody had pushed her at the bend, and she'd fallen headlong. I did not mention what I'd seen then, as some visitors were there with us, but afterwards told her, and she said she'd not seen anything, but had had a blow on her back, and had fallen so marvellously that she'd not hurt herself. Some time before this happened, she had felt a hand laid upon her head in the schoolroom, and had turned sick, and had seen a white figure going out the door. Each one of us saw this figure without telling the other, and each new servant also. Our names were often called, and the voice nearly always came from the dining room. Of ten and ten, we had answered, and gone into the room to find it empty, servants likewise. On going up and downstairs with our hands on the banisters, we sometimes imagined a cold, soft hand was laid on them, so that I avoided touching the banisters at all. We had our heads often touched, and in my case, I used to feel all five fingers distinctly. One afternoon, while studying at the schoolroom table, I had stopped up my ears with my fingers. I felt my head seized very roughly, 
and noticing my sister had gone to the cupboard behind me, thought it was her who had touched me. So I moved my head about to escape her and said, don't, and was recalled to myself by the governess who touched me and asked what on earth was the matter with me. And I found out that my sister had been back to her place for some time. That was the most distinct time I felt that. I saw many other things, but they had no sequence and so will not be interesting. Her cat was sometimes in great fright, her hair all standing on end and grovelling. But at those times we saw nothing, but of course felt skeery. The bathroom first attracted my attention. We had all a great repugnance to enter it, and I was so certain that there was something uncanny about it that I asked Mama if there was a story attached to it. She said no. Not content with that, I investigated the room and found out the door had been forced. And it proved that the lady who had had the house before us had drowned herself in the bath. Now, this is a thing I can't account for. One night, Mama, as usual, went at the usual hour to have her bath and finding to her surprise the door locked, rattled it and said, Come, Emmy, I want to come in. Emily replied from the next bedroom that she wasn't there. She tried the door and then went to see where my other sister and I were. We all came out and had a try. I must say, I could have sworn the door was locked. It might have got stuck in some peculiar way, but anyhow, after we'd all left it alone, it half opened itself. My mother was certainly puzzled at that, and she was a very practical woman. She would never acknowledge that she saw anything, but heard all the noises that we heard, and said she would move out the house earlier than she intended, because the servants declared the house haunted and said they wouldn't stay, and she was afraid of it having a bad effect upon us. Nothing would induce the servants to stir out the kitchen or their bedroom after 10.30 at night. They barricaded up their door. One night, the cook, a new servant there, was taking up some hot water bottles to her rooms, and on drawing herself up when she came to the top landing, found herself in front of this white figure, and she turned tail and flew for her life to the kitchen. Hearing the noise, I ran down to see what was the matter, and we found her white and scared in the kitchen. We'd not told her anything about the house. It is possible the other servant may have done so, although she declared she had not. We heard the rustling of leaves or a silk train on the staircase at night, and that was the only noise that was heard in the lower regions. The dining room flat was the noisiest. We heard doors opening and shutting, or at least what sounded like it, for I used to go down sometimes to try and discover what it was. The noises were too substantial to be cats or rats. It was more like the big heavy table in the dining room and chairs being bumped about. At about six in the morning, a heavy bump sounded, which shook the whole house. In the different rooms, it sounded in different directions, and we could never find out what occasioned it, although we tried to investigate it over and over again. The shock may have taken place in some other house, and our foundations being very old, and I dare say shaky, it travelled along, and so we heard it. It was like a miniature explosion. We had a great aversion to the drawing room, and would never sit there alone, for we had a peculiar feeling that somebody was in the room with us. I often thought I was touched, and felt somebody moving about the room. It was in that room I saw a tall blue shape with what looked like eyes, but I kept looking at it 
and it slowly disappeared. This was in daylight also. Those sort of ghostly things didn't terrify me much, and especially at the last, for I was so certain that some trick was being played on us, and I tried to find out how they appeared. But one evening, I was terrified by something out of the ordinary. I was all alone in the dining room one night, as the others had all gone out to a concert, and the little one had gone to bed. It must have been about 9.30 or 10. I was working and was opposite the Edinburgh Press, or cupboard, the door of which was opened. Gradually, the feeling came over me that I wasn't alone in the room and I was being watched, so that I could not help raising my head. And exactly opposite me, just appearing round the press door, was the face of a man. The most wicked and evil-looking face I've ever seen. More like a demon's face than anything else. The skin was of a yellowy colour, and it had black hair, moustache and beard. The eyes were fixed upon me, and even as I looked, this awful head projected more round the door. There we gazed at each other. I was perfectly frozen with horror and couldn't move or speak. As soon as my senses began to collect themselves, I thought, that can't be a ghost, for it isn't transparent like the others. It seemed a solid head, for it hid the part of the door it was in front of. So I thought the best thing was to appear not frightened, as I had read in storybooks. So after gazing at me for what appeared a quarter of an hour, in my great horror, the head suddenly drew back. I still sat petrified, expecting it to come out again. And there I sat until the others came home, and it was only then that I went up to the door. I wasn't a bit surprised to find nothing behind it, because the press was filled with shelves, and it was an impossibility for anybody to get into it, so it must have been a bit of my brain in an excitable condition. That was a substantial ghost, as I call it. I saw one other, but it was a most natural one. Passing through the hall, I saw an old woman standing by the hall door, and going to Mama, I asked her who she was and what she'd come for. Mama said she didn't know anybody had come, so going back into the hall, I saw she was still there, and went down to tell the servants that somebody had come and to go and see what she wanted. When I came back, the woman had disappeared. I immediately went to the hall door, found it locked, and opening it, went to the garden looking for the woman, but she was not to be seen. The servants, too, did not know anything about her. I had not fear or surprise at seeing her, because I didn't guess for a moment that she wasn't real. Now I have told you as well as I can remember it. We put a great deal of these experiences down to a damp house and neuralgia, also indigestion. I was constantly suffering from neuralgia there, and that, I dare say, was the cause of all my apparitions. I hope, though, that these ridiculous notes may be of some use to you. Penelope's sister Emily also detailed her accounts. I've been a long time in writing out my account. I hope now it's done it will prove to be something not too utterly ridiculous. It seems so foolish for a sensible creature like myself to commit to paper things so perfectly puerile. My contempt for ghosts passes description, and I'm very angry that I did see that mournful white thing by the dressing table, as I have to put it down. But I attribute it, like Mr Scrooge, to a piece of undigested beef or speck of mustard, from which delicacies old Marley was supposed to have been compounded. 
In accordance with Mrs. Britska's request, I send an account of my experiences at our old house in Edinburgh. I was quite a child when we were first there, and was told nothing as to the rumours afloat about the house, or earlier experiences of my sisters. I felt long before I saw, but thought it was merely the natural childish fear of dark rooms and solitude. But as I grew older and stronger, I lost the fear, but not the feeling, which was distinctly attached to certain portions of the house, namely the drawing room, the dining room and the staircase. In the drawing room, the sensation was of someone pacing the room hurriedly up and down, pausing now and again, then continuing. On one occasion, my eldest sister left the piano at which she was practising, because she had the distinct impression of someone passing continuously behind the chair. In the dining room, I frequently experienced the sensation of someone bending over my shoulder, a distinct feeling of the air being disturbed. The cat has often risen from the rug on which it was sleeping, with hair and tail erect, in evident horror at something, and we've had several cats in rotation, and each in turn exhibited symptoms of fear occasionally. The staircase seemed to be the happy hunting ground of the ghosts, and here repeated phenomena took place. Descending one evening, a small, cold hand was laid upon mine, which was resting on the banisters. Each finger I felt exactly, soft and cold, and could hardly believe that nothing was visible. Others in the house frequently saw the white figure on the staircase, but I never did, and refused to believe in it at all, until one afternoon when I was sent into my mother's room to report if the fire were burning satisfactorily. Being disturbed in the middle of my singing, I went to execute the errand in the frame of mind not exactly calculated to see ghosts. It was dusk as I entered the room, and everything was more or less in shadow, which perhaps served to throw out in bold relief the tall white form of a woman leaning against the window curtain by the dressing table. She was supernaturally tall and stood with arms folded, looking straight at me, with a most heartbroken expression in the eyes. Even at the first glance it didn't look real, as the dark blue curtain was visible all through it, but less so at the face and shoulders. The face was so sad and sweet I didn't feel very frightened, but walked straight up to the curtain and grasped it in my hands, shook it and looked behind it, but there was nothing there. Then I became frightened and ran out the room. I never saw it before, and I never saw it after that. My room was at the end of a passage which led from the staircase landing and passed through the bathroom door. It was only separated therefore from the bathroom by the wall, and although I knew later on what tragedy had occurred in that room, its close proximity didn't disturb me in the slightest. My room was distinctly one of the clear spots in the house. I was always glad to get into it and close the door, as it always felt safe. This feeling didn't prevent me from hearing what occurred in the rest of the house though. One night I started up in bed from a sound sleep. I do not know what woke me, but I heard a soft rustling sound descending the stairs. I couldn't account for it, and could only compare it to dead leaves being swept down the steps. Soon after, the hall clock struck one o'clock. The next morning, the cook and the housemaid told me, of their own accord, that as the clock struck one, they heard a soft, rustly kind of sound come down the kitchen stairs, sweep into the laundry, run round three times, then there was a great bang. 
The cook described the sound as a lot of dead leaves like. This is very remarkable as my room was two stories above the kitchen and the time and description of the sound tally exactly. I was present when the door of the bathroom refused to open and was about to try and open it myself for the third time when it opened gently and resistlessly without any effort on my part. I was the only one in the house, however, who never heard the morning bang, as we called it, though the German governess and various visitors all heard it. We left the house earlier than we intended, as the servants refused at last to remain and became very troublesome, never venturing about the house except in couples, and no power upon earth could have induced them to quit the room after half past ten which from their account was in a sort of besieged garrison condition, the door being securely barricaded from within, so any disturbance which occurred during the night could not possibly be placed, as some have supposed, to their account. I don't think I have anything more to say. We were all glad to leave the house, and a month or two after, we went over to it one day with some friends, and the feeling of gloom and oppression was appalling. We were glad to get back into the sunshine, and all unhesitatingly pronounced it haunted. It must have been fearfully damp. A bonbon left on the shelf of the cupboard in my sister's room would be completely melted in two days, and boots and shoes, unless constantly worn, were apt to get all mouldy and damp. I can't account for anything which happened, and can safely affirm that anything which I saw or felt was certainly not due to fear or nervousness, as I unhesitatingly would go to any portion of the house all alone in the dark. My double, or wraith, was seen twice upon the bend of the staircase, once by my sister and once by a friend, at different times, but always upon the same place. Now, as I have nothing more to say, I'll end Another sister, Zoe, added, I was ten years old at the time I saw this figure, and my mind was far from ghosts, as my mother had never allowed anyone to speak to me of such things. One day, I was let out of the schoolroom for half an hour's play at twelve o'clock. My playroom was upstairs, and as children often do, I ran upstairs on all fours. As I reached the middle of the stairs, a peculiar feeling made me look to the top of the landing, and standing close to the first step of the stair was a tall, white figure of a woman, and it seemed to be above the usual height. I could see the form distinctly, but at the same time I saw through her. It looked at me for a few seconds, then turned and walked into the passage leading to the bathroom. Not knowing what it was, I had not the slightest fear and followed it there. Of course, when I got there, the room was empty. It was then, for the first time, that I felt, as the Scots say, uncanny. I told my mother what I'd seen, but she laughed at me, and I'd soon forgotten all about it. This is the only time I saw the figure, but I often heard myself called from a sunk press in the dining room, but that may have been an echo. Very frequently in the morning, around six, my mother and I heard a loud thud against the inner wall of the house. It shook the whole house, and for a long time my mother took no notice of it. She thought it was the servant cleaning the schoolroom below, and after pulling out the grand piano to clean behind it, had rolled it back with too great a force and knocked the wall. My sisters heard it too, but in different parts of the house. One morning my sister went down to find out if it was the servant, but she found her at the grate cleaning the irons. 
She said she'd been there fully ten minutes and had never heard the sound herself. A great many of our servants left us because of the sounds and the sights. One cook we had was taking the hot water bottles up to the beds one night and she saw this figure in the middle of the stairs. She was so frightened she didn't know she'd let one of the bottles fall on her bare arm till she got downstairs again and found her arm most frightfully burnt. Except for hearing strange sounds, which I was told to put down to rats, and having a peculiar depressed feeling come over me when I entered the house, nothing else happened to me that I can remember. Finally, the remaining sister, Catherine, reported seeing an apparition in 1872 while studying again in the schoolroom. She recounts that she fell unconscious, and when she came to, she saw the apparition of a tall, elegant woman draped in white walking through the door. Six years later, a similar incident happened while Catherine was walking downstairs. She fell unconscious, tumbling down several stairs, and her sister Penelope rushed to her aid. When she arrived, Penelope looked upstairs and saw, standing at the top, looking down at her, the same tall, elegant woman in white witnessed so often. Penelope assumed Catherine had seen the woman and fallen in fright, but Catherine maintained she'd felt a strong, violent push knocking her down the stairs. Catherine also wrote how, not long after moving into the property, her mother had tried to enter the bathroom to take a bath, but found the door wouldn't budge. It was only after the sign of the cross was drawn on the door that the seemingly supernatural barricade was lifted. Upon reflecting on the Monroe sisters' experiences in Blackett Place, a blend of the ordinary and the mysterious emerges. The family, surrounded by the historical tapestry of Edinburgh, found themselves caught in a web of unexplained events within the confines of their new home. Upon moving in, it came to light that a previous occupant, a woman, had tragically taken her own life. The question lingers. Could this event have been a catalyst or contributor to the mysterious occurrences within the sandstone walls. The sisters' accounts, as shared in the Society for Psychical Research Investigation, reveal a series of perplexing events. A figure in white, peculiar sounds and unsettling sensations collectively crafted an atmosphere where the boundary between reality and the supernatural became blurred. The bathroom marked by its share of odd incidents, carried a tragic history that seemed to echo through the experiences of subsequent inhabitants. Whether attributed to physical factors or dampness, the manifestations transcended the rational, suggesting a link between past events and present disturbances. The stories of the morning bang, rustling leaves and apparitions in daylight form a patchwork of unexplained phenomena. The Monroe sisters, with their straightforward perspectives, recount incidents that defy easy explanation. A persistent question remains. Did the reported suicide in the bathroom serve as a catalyst for the hauntings? Did the tragic end of a woman's life create a portal for the supernatural to manifest? In concluding the accounts of Blackett Place, it emerges as a space where the known and the unknown coexist. The family stories provoke contemplation on the enigmatic aspects that may intertwine with our everyday lives, 
inviting us to consider the delicate veil separating the seen from the unseen. <laughs>